I don't know if you heard when I was asking those questions uh, to Mark and Christy. I mean, the simple one, do you want your child baptized, which is sort of obvious. Here they are. Um, but I don't know if you heard that one question. I think it was the second one. Proclaiming this covenant with Jesus Christ, do you renounce all the powers of evil and declare your opposition to a way of life in contradiction to the gospel? Whoa, that's quite a question, isn't it? This is one of the reasons why I always meet with a couple before baptism to let them know that that question is coming, because it can sound a little bit scary when it comes. But Mark and Christy and I talked about this. Pastor Diane and I recently met with Hindo Ali, who's going to be baptized next week, and explained it to him as well. And what I explain to parents is this. I say, do you think that there will be influences and forces in this world that will try to pull Grayson away from God? Of course there are. We know there's forces that try to pull us away from God, right? And Diane and I will ask that of Hindo next week as well. See, baptism is a mark. It is a claim. It's a statement that we are one in Christ. The teaching we just heard, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism that unites us in Jesus Christ. And we do that with strength as we strengthen the church because we know that there are all kinds of influences and forces that would try to pull us apart and pull us away from Christ. This is why we hear this challenge to unity and that we will look at for the next five weeks, this theme of unite. It was the theme for CHIC, which is our Covenant High in Christ conference that many of us went to in Tennessee this summer. Every three years, the Covenant does a huge youth event, and there was uh, over 5,000 of us at the University of Tennessee, and our theme was unite, how to encourage our young people to take their faith seriously and to be strong together. And so we're going to kind of unpack it for these next five weeks, this element of unity that we hear about in Ephesians 4. It seems that we come up with, every day we come up with new ways to divide ourselves from others. Whether our division is by ethnicity, or by age, or gender, or sexuality, or political party, or whatever other labels we want to ascribe to ourselves. We come up with ways to divide ourselves, and unfortunately the church is not exempt from all of these divisions. And that's why Jesus had a lot to say about oneness and unity. And he modeled it in his own life. He modeled it in his own humility in order to bring us together. He modeled it in his own, uh, in his own sufferings for the world. He showed his humility. And he hold, showed us through his humility how, uh, really how we ought to live with one another as well. And so we, we see it and we hear it from him, but we also have it beautifully taught and proclaimed by the Apostle Paul in today's text from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 that we just heard. And so this is what I want to say today as we be, jump into this five-week series, that Jesus modeled unity. He modeled what unity should look like as he humbled himself to live among us. Jesus humbled himself in order to be God with us and live among us. And as citizens of his kingdom, as members of his body, we too are called to humble ourselves and join together with our sisters and brothers to strengthen the church. Unity comes through a humbling to one another and being strong together. And Jesus is the model. So we're going to look at it this way. We're first of all going to look at some images of unity. And then we'll look at the text a little bit, that Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and kind of divide that into the call of unity, the character of unity, this humility thing, and then the case for unity being rooted in the nature of God. And then finally, what will be our commitment to unity? 
images of unity. The world we live in, created and natural, uh, as well as human-made things, offer us a, a lot of different images of, of unity, of working together towards a, a common goal uh, and an important cause. And so I've, I've, I've labeled this part football, fists, and ants, and I'll explain that now. Um, now, football, those of you who have heard me preach for more than a few years know I'm, I'm not a big sports analogy uh football guy. I, I, I am not a huge, I'm a, I'm a kind of a moderate sports fan. I'm not a huge sports fan. And I, I, I'm, I admit I'm a shameless, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, bandwagoner. You know, I, you know, when, you know like, like I'm starting to pay attention to the Cubs now, for example. Now that it looks like they might, you know, make it all the way. So I, I like the Cubs, but I don't watch every game and know every player's statistics and things. And I can't help notice how hard Matt Nagy is trying to put together Maybe, maybe this time a winning Bears football team, right? you got to give the guy credit. He's trying hard. But let's think about football in light of this unity. You see, football teams, uh, in football teams we see a diversity of, uh, of, um, of abilities working together towards a common goal. Sport teams are comprised not just of individual players, but of different players with different strengths. A team is at its best when those different players come together to pursue a common goal. And football, American football, is an example of this kind of unity. Each team has 11 players filling 11 different roles on the field at one time. Now, if I hadn't read that this week, I would probably... This is how kind of a moderate fan I am. How many football players? I go, uh, I think it's... Is it 11? Yeah, it is 11. Okay, so see, that's how I'm, I kind of know football. But I do know that when those 11 players hit the field, that they each have a very distinct role to play. And they need to perform that role according to the playbook. And that no single player bears the entire load, nor does any player expect the other player teams to play their role. Now sometimes a defensive lineman may actually catch a pass and intercept it. But that's not the role that he's trained for. The team understands that every player in every position plays a vital role. And it reminds us of Paul's teaching on unity in 1 Corinthians 12. That's the chapter where Paul talks about all the different body parts that are connected to each other and need each other. And we can't all be arms and we can't all be eyes. We all have these different parts to play. A diversity of abilities working together towards a common goal. That's football. We're going to talk about fist, the raised fist. Now, this image can make us think of defiance and make us think of protest. But a raised fist also represents unity in the sense of solidarity and strength. You see, the clenched fist symbolizes strength and unity. See, fingers alone become fragile and, and, uh, and can be hurt easily on their own. But when they come together, they become much stronger and make a powerful fist. It is therefore a symbol of solidarity and strength for many revolutionaries through the world. I can remember we sometimes would capture pictures of our children when they were babies and they would stretch like this and we would say, power to the babies, because they like to do that too. Learning to clench that fist. And then there are the ants. I noticed that GMC has a commercial on TV now for their terrain SUV. And it begins with this image of ants. I don't know if you can see it very well in the light, but this image of ants carrying these giant leaves. And it says, the, the voiceover says, strength does sometimes come in small packages. And apparently the, the terrain is their, kind of their low-end, cheaper SUV uh, in the relative world of cheap cars, yeah. Um, and so it talks about strength in small packages. 
I think of also uh, Gary Walter, the president of the Covenant, who just finished uh, on Friday was his last day in office. And Gary served for 10 years and was celebrated at Covenant offices this week. But Gary would always talk about the Covenant being a really tiny denomination, but we fight above our weight class. You know, we're, we're like these ants. We're, we're, we're strength in our, in our small numbers, in our growing churches, in our commitment to mission in the world. But seriously, as you think about ants, there's kind of a selflessness of ants that sort of embodies this image of common unity. Ants work as a group to achieve their goals. Ant colonies, regardless of size, organize themselves into unique labor groups. Their ability to coordinate together helps them survive in a number of climates and living conditions. And like an athletic team, the success of the ant colony is dependent on each ant fulfilling its role and purpose. Because of the unique ability of ant colonies to work together, they are known as superorganisms. Because they work in unison, the colony has the potential to take on tasks that would appear to be too daunting for such small creatures, like to carry these enormous leaves or to make rafts. Have you ever seen a picture of a... Those are ants, and they're all connected together, creating a raft that would float down a river, selflessly working for a common goal. Yesterday was my grandson's, Parker and Silas's, uh, birthday, and they had a birthday party. And you know what? They, one of the things they got for their birthday, from the sound else, an ant farm. They still make ant farms. Yeah, I should let you answer it. You were there, weren't you, Kenny? They're the same. They haven't changed. Well, have they changed a bit? I mean, so we get to discover the joys of an ant farm in the coming months as uh, Parker and Silas discover how ants work together to create colony. We'll keep you posted. Football, fists, and ants. But there's also the church itself. The church itself not only is called to unity, but it's also historically been a symbol of of unity from its very inception. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, the church was just born early in chapter 2, and a little bit later in the same chapter in the book of Acts, it says this, all the believers were together and had everything in common. The church was remarkable in that early day for its unity and its oneness and its togetherness. Yet 2,000 years later, that is not necessarily the church's reputation. Too often now, the church is known not for what we stand for, but what we are against. Author Bill Bailey says, In unity there is strength. We can move mountains when we're united and enjoy life. Without unity, we are victims. Like those loose fingers that can be easily hurt or sprained without unity. But together, they're strength constant challenge for the church. In order for the church to be the unstoppable force that Jesus spoke about, we need to demonstrate the coordinated unity of a football team, the solidarity and strength of a clenched fist, and the unselfish unity of the ant colony. So to get at this unity, now we're going to look a little bit at this text from Ephesians 4 and look beginning at verse 1 with the call of unity. Verse 1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Although Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, Paul was in prison as he wrote it. He, he's referring to him as a, cell, a prisoner for Christ. He is not referring simply to his literal captivity here. Even if Paul were free at the moment that he wrote this letter, he would still be a prisoner for Christ as a member of Christ's body. Paul uses this image of bondedness to Christ, and he says this is a starting point of unity. As we submit ourselves to Christ, we are also compelled to live a life that reflects our relationship, our communion with him. We become bonded to Christ. Jesus himself sacrificed his own life, and he modeled for us that the sacrifice necessary for unity by humbling himself and becoming fully human. 
Jesus, one with God, God in the flesh, submitted himself for the sake of unity. The Apostle Paul gave up his freedom for the sake of the unity of the body. This is one of the strange things about life in Christ that we are both fully free and fully enslaved, but in a positive way, no longer enslaved to sin, but bonded to Christ. We are set free, and yet our strength comes as we are bonded to Christ and to one another. This prisoner for Christ speaks of a relationship, communion with Christ, connection with Christ. This is the first call of unity. Prisoners for the Lord, as Paul says. Secondly, in the next couple of verses, we get this character of unity. Verses 2 and 3 say this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here Paul is highlighting the character traits of a person who leads a life worthy of the calling we have received. And what does a worthy life look like? Paul says it's a life that's marked by humility, by gentleness, by patience. There are qualities that require, these are qualities that require us to consider others above ourselves. It's a simple truth that the qualities of humility are those that cause us and call us to consider others as above ourselves. You know, and I was thinking about this this morning. I was walking and praying this morning, getting ready for day. That this is our main struggle, isn't it? This is the main, this is the main thing that makes it hard to live our life in Christ. We just so naturally get drawn to ourselves and put ourselves first. Even when we don't like ourselves, we're putting ourselves first. Did you know that? Isn't that sad? Oh, I don't like myself at all. In fact, I think about it all the time. Right? This is our struggle. But these qualities of humility, of gentleness, of patience, these are some that sometimes might be viewed as weakness in the eyes of culture, but in fact they call for an inner strength, an inner strength given only by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us the strength to be humble, gentle, and patient. And when a community decides to live out these virtues together, people are genuinely cared for, needs are met, and it is in our vulnerability with each other that it's accepted that no one is perfect and therefore we can move forward together because we're all on this journey. We're all on a journey and, and there's this passion for those be, for, who are far from Christ and there's the possibility of a shalom, of an all as well that can come when we admit our imperfection and yet our desire to live for Christ and to care for one another. It's a big task, but that's the heart of unity comes in that kind of humility. These virtues, these character traits must be lived out in community. And as we do that, we realize that we are not necessarily called to be right. We are called to be righteous, to work together for what is right. Verses 4, 5, and 6 kind of give us the case for unity. Verse 4, 5, and 6 say, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, in these verses, the Apostle Paul appeals to the body of Christ on the basis of this spiritual, spiritual unity and oneness. It's all who we are is rooted in, in the very nature of who God is, this, this oneness. And so he, he just unloads all of these little metaphors real quick. He says the church is one body. And Paul has used the image of, of the body for oneness. And we see that and we say, you know, believers may meet in many different places and speak many different languages and live in different cultures. But none of those differences separate us because we are one body in Christ. Secondly, he says the church obeys one spirit. 
Many people may claim to bring God's message or teach God's truth, but we follow one Lord, one Spirit leads us into the truth. Next he says, the church lives in the light of its one hope. There's one hope in Jesus Christ. There's one hope for the world in and through Christ. And hope is what the world needs. He also says the church proclaims one faith. Not a variety of faiths, but one faith. One faith rooted in, grounded in, tied to the crucified, resurrected Lord. He alone is the object of our faith. There is one faith. And membership in the family of faith is marked by one baptism. Each member enters the baptismal waters once to confess the one faith and become part of the one body. Whether that baptism happens when one is just a few months old, like Grayson, or later in life after one has become a believer and enters the water of baptism, in both cases it marks our membership in the family of faith. There is one baptism. Anybody watch Aretha Franklin's funeral? All eight hours? So... Um, this is great. This is the pulpit at Greater Grace Temple in Detroit. I said, they took it from this week's text for my sermon. One Lord, one faith baptism, right on the front of the pulpit. That's Smokey Robinson, by the way. And so there's this testimony to faith. And I thought of this unity yesterday, too, also as I thought of Aretha's funeral on Friday and John McCain's funeral yesterday. Very different settings. You have no mistake when you walk in the Greater Grace Temple in Detroit that you are not in the National Cathedral in Washington. They are really different buildings. And Aretha Franklin and John McCain were very different people. And the ways those services, it was not eight hours in Washington. I know that. It was three, though. Thank you. That's still a long one, yeah. And we'll be done quicker than that, I promise, today. So. And I don't know particularly about the details of Aretha or John's walk with Christ. That doesn't matter. They chose, they wanted their farewell to happen among worshiping people and people of faith where the word was proclaimed. How different people, what different stories, what different impact on our culture. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We see that unity right here in our culture swirling around us. And here it is spoken by the Apostle Paul nearly 2,000 years ago. This final element then of spiritual unity is that there is one God. This concept is, as Paul says, one God, he's trying to say, we are a Jewish-rooted church. The Jews were the only monotheists around. It was their mark and their distinction of who they were. And the worship of one God united them, and the worship of one God continues to unite the church. We find our unity in the triune God right in this text. The Holy Spirit brings us unity, verse 4. The Son reigns in our unity, verse 5. And the Father sustains our unity, verse 6. And it's what Jesus himself prayed for in John chapter 17. At verse 20, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. This is when Jesus was praying for us. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We are called to display the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. We are called to be the answer to his prayers. 
Let's finish and just look now at a, a commitment to unity. The first step is just simply taking responsibility in terms of our own walk with Christ. Taking time daily just for a little bit of reflection on, on, on how we're doing in terms of our connection to Christ. And I think sometimes, some days, we just need to do a little bit of humility, humility work and say, God, where do I, where are those places I keep putting myself in the middle of the story? Where are the places that my own opinions, my own preference, my own comfort, my own goals, my own desired outcomes seem to be getting in, in the way of connecting with other people and with what you're doing in the world? And our walk with Jesus, kind of doing a little bit of that humility work and, and seeking the Spirit and asking Him to give us strength to be humble, to be gentle and patient, and then when those come together, then to be strong in the strength that the Spirit gives us. A commitment to unity comes in our walk with Jesus, but it comes also as we work together to strengthen our church. This church. Some of you are guests today. You're welcome to listen in. Most people know, and if you're new to us, we are in, I am so tired of the word season of transition. I think every stage of life is a season of transition, right? Well, we're in one. I'm retiring uh, May 31st. So it's still good nine, almost nine months, just a little short of nine months. Not that I'm counting. I'm not counting. But, um, and so we're seeking God's direction for our church. But it's calling each of us to humble ourselves in terms of opinions, preferences, comfort, and things like that. And I think something the spiritual director shared with actually Kathy Bittner and me uh, several months ago when we met with her talking about this process. She said, what is, what is God's will for your church? Is God's will for our church, is the God's will for our church, the single answer we're getting, looking is for a pastor's name? Will it be Diana Shiflett or will it be some other pastor that we don't know yet who really might be better suited or whatever? And the answer is no, that is not God's will for our church. God's will for our church is that he be honored and glorified. God's will for our church is that we live into the mission that he's called us to on this corner for 40 years. God's will is that we continue to seek him and make these connections in the neighborhood and connections within this community to keep ourselves from wandering away, to be there for little people like Grayson and the other children in midst, to help them to understand how a living faith really lives and really works. That's God's will for our church. And to be honest, I know maybe I'm off theologically here, there could be any number of pastors that could lead you in that mission. We need to focus on God's will for the church in the big picture. What Jesus prayed for in this passage in John 17 was not the specific leaders that would lead specific churches, but that we would be one in working towards the mission of God in this world. Our commitment to unity comes in our individual walk. Our commitment to unity comes in our strengthening of our own church. And today we have the privilege of of recognizing our unity as we we come to the table of the Lord as well. You know, Jesus gave us this, this supper, and he said to repeat it often. Some churches do it weekly. Our Catholic friends celebrate, every time they celebrate Mass, they have communion. Some of our covenant churches do it weekly. I grew up at a church that did it three or four times a year, because if you do it every week, it becomes old hat. The covenanters, typical kind of a Goldilocks church, once a month seems just right, you know, so we've chosen... Just right, once a month. It doesn't matter how often. But it matters that we do it. Because just as baptism was a command of Jesus, so communion is a command of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me, that you eat this bread and take this cup. And Jesus commanded us to do it because it was an expression of our unity, our communion with him and our communion with each other. 
and it names and it calls on and it honors and it recognizes his presence here. Not Jesus as a 2,000-year-old historical figure that we revere, but as a living Lord who is in our midst. And so we celebrate at at the table today. Here then the invitation to the table. Come to the sacred table not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. Hear then the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had blessed it and broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this table that is a symbol of unity. Oh, but so much more. Because you are present in our midst, Lord Jesus. And we welcome you. We look to your model of humility And we commit to you our desire to live that way too, that we would be strong together and that there would be hope for the world. So Lord, I pray for each of my sisters and brothers now as we consider coming forward, you would bless us as we partake. We ask this and pray this in your name. Amen.